So thanks very much uh, for, for joining us, Nick. I suppose the first question is for people who haven't read Treasure Islands, can you describe for us its key findings? Well, I, there, there are a couple of, um, there are lots of things, but one main, a couple of main conclusions. One is that the offshore system of tax havens is much, much bigger and much more central to the global economy than almost anybody had, had thought. I mean, it's seen in the popular imagination as a, you know, a sort of <coughs> exotic sideshow to, to the global economy. But really, since the era of globalization began in the sort of 1970s, um, the offshore system of tax havens has been growing much, much faster than the supposedly onshore economies and has been steadily pushing its way onshore. So a lot of um, you know, big countries are increasingly resemble, resembling tax havens as they kind of tr try and sort of compete with each other to attract the hot money. So they, you know, increasingly offer, you know, stronger forms of secrecy and new forms of trust and corporations and so on um, to try and attract the, the, the hot money and, you know, new tax loopholes. Um, another big finding is that tax havens are not where most people think they are. Of course, places like Switzerland and the Cayman Islands and Monaco are tax havens, big and important tax havens. But the really big ones um, are places like the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, which runs a huge network of satellite tax havens around it that are feeding the city of London. Um, the UK has <coughs> its overseas territories, which it partly controls, include the Cayman Islands, Gibraltar, British Virgin Islands, massive tax havens, um, and also the Crown Dependencies, which are Jersey, Guernsey, and the Isle of Man. And these are all kind of like, um, in Treasure Islands, I describe it a bit like a, a spider's web with the city of London sort of at the middle. So these places are kind of capturing business from around the world and, the, and the, you know, the business of handling money from around the world um, and funneling this money up to London. And, and they are deliberately setting, a, you know, they are lowering the standards on, on secrecy and, and, and various other, other things to um, entice this money. And so the City of London itself is kind of um, only indirectly implicated in, in this stuff. It is, um, it is at one step removed and there's kind of plausible deniability. You know, this is not, we're, we're not uh, offering these secrecy facilities. But this network is, and it's very much a British network and it is, in a sense, a financial empire. Um, it grew up very much uh, from, particularly from the 1950s onwards with the city of London, the growth of the euro markets. And, you know, that was when the former British empire was ending. But um, the UK has managed to retain a, a significant degree of um, influence over the flows of money around the world um, after the collapse of empire. And, and it now has this new kind of financial empire, which is feeding the city of London. Two big, uh, big conclusions. And are there, any, are there any countries that don't allow offshoring? And if so, how do they do it? Well, the, the, the trouble with, uh, with, with this is that there is, um, uh, there is <coughs> it's all shades of grey. Some countries deliberately set out to be tax havens. So Switzerland is a classic example. It has for decades set out to provide banking secrecy and um, to attract, you know, dirty money, criminal money and other sorts of money from around the world. Um, but... You know, every country, in a sense, is a tax haven in its own right because um, there isn't an, an international network of kind of transparency of sort of sharing information between countries um, that makes any you know makes any country in the world completely transparent. If you take your money to to you know Germany or somewhere like that, it's um, it's going to be difficult to, uh, to you know, if you're you know an African government or something like that, it's going to be quite difficult to get hold of information about that money. There's no automatic sharing mechanisms. There are some sharing mechanisms in this sort of fledgling state. The European Union has one, 
called the Savings Tax Directive, and the United States is starting to get um, more active in this area. <clears throat> so there are some international information sharing transparency mechanisms, but they're still kind of very much, it's very much a sort of patchwork, a very insufficient patchwork. So, um, you know, when money moves across borders, very often it is able to find secrecy. But I think when you're looking at tax havens, you know, what's what you're really looking at is places that are deliberately setting out on a strategy to, to, to do this. Um, mm. Some countries are tax havens kind of by accident, but they, they tend not to be the, the, the big players. The big players are, are the ones that have deliberately um, set out to, to create this stuff. And what's your view on the supposed benefits of the extra liquidity that our internationalized banking and money system provide versus the loss of money in the real economy that you describe so well in, in Treasure Island? Well, if you take the UK, for example, um, you, on the one <clears throat> hand, you have the UK losing tax revenue to tax havens. So British tax evaders or tax avoiders, that is, you know, for example, corporations that are not technically breaking the law, but are still um, cutting their tax bills substantially. <coughs> um, uh, you know, these are costing the, the Treasury, you know, billions of dollars, billions of pounds, billions of dollars. But the um, at the same time, the money that's coming into the United Kingdom from tax havens, there's this huge kind of feeder mechanism into the UK, um, is, is benefiting the City of London. And I'd be very careful about how to phrase this because what the city does is it says this is good for Britain, this is money coming into Britain. But um, I argue very strongly that it isn't. This is money that is good for the city. But what it does, it creates this international financial centre, this offshore financial centre in the heart of the United Kingdom. Um, makes it almost unreformable. Um, it has made the city, if, if people are worried about the power of the city of London and the fact that cities are able to suck up the best talent and all the best capital and all the best, you know, and influence all the policy makers, <coughs> this power and this strength comes in very large measure from its international network and, and the offshore network. So, um, <coughs> you know, just to say, oh, money coming into Britain must be good for Britain, um, it, it's just not true. Um, is Britain any off for all the, you know, these these hundreds of billions of dollars that have been flooding into the UK? Is Britain any better off than, say, you know, Germany or France or Sweden or or Canada, which have not been playing, you know, nearly such a such a financial game? And I would I would I would say no. It, Britain is on many measures much more unequal, much you know, worse health outcomes, um, worse social outcomes than, than these other countries. And um, I think there's quite a lot of lot of evidence to suggest that the um, that the uh, Financial centre has been a very powerful driver of these problems, rather than a, um, a contributor to, you know, rather than something that benefits Britain. And the, the book shows very powerfully how the UK is inextricably linked to offshore banking. Uh, assuming that it was possible to regulate that and to curtail its activities, would the impacts of doing that be only beneficial? Or uh, for the 99%, as it were, or would there be a downside to doing that, do you think? Well, the, the, there are huge, I mean, <coughs> the city lobbyists, the lobbyists in the City of London, the financial industry more generally, always say, they always wheel out this argument, don't regulate us too much, don't tax us too much, because then we'll kind of, you know, we'll pull on our horns and we won't lend anything and the economy will collapse. Um, but the fact is that there has been this, uh, you know, it's been almost a, um, you know, fraud perpetrated by the financial sector on the UK. They have, you know, it's a, it's well known now that there has been this, um, you know, when times are good, all the benefits go to the bankers and the banks, and when times are bad, all those risks and costs get shifted onto the burden of, uh, of ordinary taxpayers. So <coughs> this, um, you know, this this narrative that comes out of the city, and it is widely repeated, is 
is you know demonstrably untrue. It is a, it is a much more complicated, nuanced picture than that. And I I would argue that um, you know if you <coughs> if you have a system that just remains unregulated and uncontrolled, you're going to have even store up even bigger problems in the future. And I think if you did start to regulate banks and banking proper, properly, not just in an offshore sense, but in terms of you know capital requirements and all sorts of other things. You would end up having a much stronger, much healthier economy. And in fact, there is, you know, there is um, historical evidence to suggest that this is the case. Back in um, the period after the Second World War, um, when the Bretton Woods institutions were set up, that was an era when people had really learned the lessons of the Great Depression. There were huge policy mistakes. The Great Depression itself followed a period of, you know, extreme financial freedoms, and. Um, Afterwards, the you know international policymakers in the UK and the United States and elsewhere <coughs> decided that the way forward was to powerfully restrain the banks and to prevent them from speculating large amounts uh, across borders and to really curtail them. And and in Treasure Islands, I do describe sort of just how you know the banks were really champing at the bit. They were they were um, you know back in the, in 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 the 25 or so years following the Second World War, the banks were really tightly constrained. Um, and, and, the, and, and that was a period of extremely high and broad-based economic growth internationally. Um, this is, you know, it's now known as the golden age of capitalism. Um, and it kind of came to the end in the 1970s. And since then, we've seen, you know, ordinary people's wages stagnate and um, uh, lots of financial crises um, <coughs> since then and all sorts of other problems. Um, and that has coincided with a period of financial liberalization and financial freedoms, which has been very substantially accelerated by the offshore system. So, um, you know, financial liberalization kind of opens up, you know, international markets for the flow of financial capital. But tax havens kind of take that one step further by artificially creating things that will attract cross-border um, money flows will accelerate those flows. So if you offer secrecy, then lots of money will will, will flow in that you know flow in pursuit of that. And and so the tax havens have been a sort of accelerator of financial globalization, and um, I would argue with with very harmful effects. And do you think it's possible to reform financial the financial institutions and the model you're talking about that are so responsible for the crisis we're in, or do we need to build a new financial system based more on cooperatives, credit unions, regional currencies, that kind of thing, and how? How do we start that shift and where might the political support come from? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think the difference between now and the Great Depression, after the Great Depression, <coughs> when the Great Depression happened, things were so bad that you did see a major political realign realignment, particularly in the United States. And you had um, uh, the New Deal coming in with very progressive le legislation and high tax rates and, you know, as I said, very tight constraints on... Uh, banks and for the financial sector and on capital flows. Um, and so, you, you know, this political realignment really set the stage for a period of, you know, wonderful prosperity for, for quite some time. Um, unfortunately, this crisis does not seem to have produced that realignment yet. Um, we have seen um, really tinkering at the edges. And, and at the end of the day, it's all about political realignments. It's all about citizens you know, collectively forcing the politicians to to really change. So, I mean, we are seeing a little bit of a swing now. There does seem to be a bit of a swing in Europe against austerity, and perhaps that's the start of start of something bigger. But I think until we see a much more fundamental political and social change in in response to um, the crisis, um, you know, and 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 you know, maybe you know, the Occupy movement times ten. Um, 
<coughs> I think that's when we're going to start seeing the possibility of change. And until then, I think we're going to have, you know, we do have in Britain particularly, um, and very substantially in the United States, you have the bankers calling the shots and telling the politicians what to do, and not much has changed there. And I think that's, that is the essential first step. The aspect that I'm very involved in and, and that this, this interview will, will go out to is the, is the transition movement, the transition towns, which is very much about communities looking at uh, intentionally making themselves more resilient in setting up local energy, community energy companies, local currencies, <laughs> local food systems, that kind of thing which is yeah. very much moving in the opposite direction than, than the kind of system uh, that you're talking about and of, of, yeah. of reclaiming re, uh, control at the local level in that sense, yeah. which kind of leads into a couple of questions really. So the, the first one is, do you think something like that can succeed despite the enormous power and influence that will be fundamentally threatened uh, by that? What's important when one uses the word local, I, I think... You know, what I'm particularly interested in is, is the sort of fragmentation of the international financial architecture. And the fragments are nation states. Um, that, for me, is the kind of key fault line that, that is a problem for me. Because, you know, within a nation state, you have kind of democratically created uh, tax systems. And, and sometimes inside nation states, you know, um, in Switzerland, for example, they have the cantons where you have a lot of local tax raising. Um, <coughs> but essentially, it is, it is the sort of nation state, for, for me, that is the... The most important local level. Um, I'm, I, you know, I think it is very interesting and useful to have um, a local community organisation. I, I think that's a very powerful thing and very important. Um, it's not something that I have particularly paid attention to, um, just because I'm much more focused on the in international level. Yeah. Um, I, and, and I, but I do think, from from the point of view of tax havens. Um, you know, it's the jurisdictional unit, the nation state, that is the kind of the, the, the fundamental building block of the whole process um, with, with regard to tax havens. And, you know, I do think community organizing can be fantastic in creating networks and creating awareness. But in terms of the actual mechanics of offshoring, um, you know, it doesn't mesh immediately, uh, or, you know, not immediately mm. with, with that with that problem, if you see what I mean. And would you have a sense of, of, of how uh, those of us who, who, who want to bring about the kind of change that, that, that we're talking about should divide their time between trying to stop the sort of corporate looting and building resilience at the local level? There is no magic bullet. Um, if there is a magic bullet, it is um, political and local and, and social organisation um, and, and awareness, the building of awareness. And that is the stage we're at now. Mm. And I think it is significant. You know, you've had groups such as UK Uncut, um, which have protested against corporate tax avoidance and Occupy, which has been very important, <coughs> which many have derided as you know not having achieved any many particular aims. But in fact, what we have seen, we've had seen a remarkable spectacle of Conservative Chancellor George, George Osborne calling progressive tax avoidance morally repugnant. And a lot of statements, you've had business leaders such as um, Andrew Whitty of GlaxoSmithKline making some very powerful statements about corporate responsibility and the responsibility of corporations, not just to their shareholders, but to, to wider sets of sh stakeholders, and particularly with tax in mind. I think tax for me is a real touchstone of corporate responsibility. If a corporation is prepared to engage in the tax debate, then it is, I think, for the first time, you know, it's, it's so easy for corporations to do window dressing and, and you know, mm. things that really matter to them. But I think when you touch on tax, that's when you, when you really um, start to see whether they, <coughs> you know, whether they're just window dressing or if they're really interested in, in engaging. So I think I think touching on tax from a corporate responsibility perspective is, is, is very important. And the fact that there have been these protest movements um, <coughs> is much more significant and has had much more significant 
impacts, I think, than, than many people think, because really now the politicians do know that they can't just get away with, with saying, oh, let's just get on with this stuff. They have to at least be seen to be doing the right thing. Whether they do the right thing is, is, is another matter. But I think that, you know, all of this is just an important first step and much more awareness raising is needed and much more. Um, I also would suggest that the economics profession in particular has had this massive blind spot when it comes to um, uh, tax havens and offshore and secrecy and, and, and tax evasion and things like that. They just have just chosen because it's so difficult to measure and so difficult to understand they have basically treated it like a kind of somebody else's problem um, thing and, you know, let somebody else deal with that. And as a result, it's just got been left to kind of fester and grow rapidly without anybody challenging it. And I think if we can get economists to start taking this stuff seriously and, <coughs> and to really, um, uh, because economists are so influential, I think that will also be, um, be uh, you know, an important step. So, you know, but at, at, the bottom of the, at the bottom of it all is awareness raising and political consciousness, and that's, that's what needs to really happen now. And do you see that there is any way out of the current financial uh, crisis that's getting worse and worse in so many places without tackling offshore banking? I think it will be very difficult to, without tackling offshore bank banking. I mean, a lot of these problems, you know, have many, have, have a whole array of causes. Um, Offshore is is like a kind of one of these underlying um, causes that is is very diffuse and very hard to put your finger on. That's one of the great problems with it. And um, many of these other causes that 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 you know the size of the financial sector, the size and the power of the financial sector, um, are very strongly influenced by the fact that the, the financial actors are able to use offshore the offshore escape route to escape financial regulations or whatever. Um, <coughs> And so offshore is, you know, it's a kind of thing right at, you know, that's in the background of so much that's been going on. Uh, um, but it's, you know, it, because it's hard to sort of point to as a specific, you know, here's a trigger from offshore, that's much harder to do. And that's, that's making it much harder for people to see this. But I think, I think if you did tackle offshore um, uh, and you did also restrain, find mechanisms to curb the sort of huge tides of hot money that flow through the global economy, I think you would then have a serious chance of, of you know getting the financial system on a, on a much better long-term footing but um but i think uh you know that that's a long way uh, a, a long way in the future having written the book and done all the research and found what you have how has it changed your own relationship to how you bank and how you your relationship with money and how you live your life one thing i've realized that if you want to avoid tax havens um the best way to do it is to go and live in a cave somewhere because they're <laughs> everywhere you know you go to a cave with broadband by the sound of it <laughs> <laughs> no you couldn't have broadband if you broadband. <laughs> you'd be dealing with one of these companies you you basically have no you you can't avoid it you have um uh, you know, all the multinationals on the high street that you see will be using tax havens one or one way or another um, for, for various different reasons. Um, the banks, of course, are, you know, all of them are massively steeped in tax havens. Um, uh, if you're an overseas resident, as I am, it is very difficult for you. They, they will try to encourage you to use offshore accounts. They will, um, you will get a lower interest rate if you, rate if you use an onshore account. They, they're always trying to get you to use offshore accounts. Um, and I, that's something actually I didn't really touch on in Treasure Islands and I do want to research it when I get some time um, as to what, just why this is. Um, uh, you know, I've, I have banked with a, with a bank in the UK for 
many years and because I you know I, I set it up when I was in the UK and I can you know and I still that is still my my bank but I actually recently tried to change my account to the cooperative bank and I wasn't allowed to because I was overseas I would have been allowed to set up an offshore account but uh, but not a, not an onshore account so uh, that, that wasn't possible so it's very difficult um, uh, I think you know if you're looking to confront this monster and to, to tackle it I think you know, voting with your wallet is, <coughs> is is important, but 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 I think it's very hard to do. I think voting, you know, political action is is really the way to go, and, and raising awareness is really what 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 matters here.